Hi, welcome to my channel. My name is Lisa Allistway, and I create inspirational and informational videos you can use and apply to your life. It is my honor to introduce to you today's guest, Terry Shulman. Terry is the founder and director of the Shulman Center for Compulsive Theft, Spending, and Hoarding. This center addresses the growing yet undertreated epidemics of compulsive stealing, spending, and hoarding. Before establishing the center, Terry worked as a drug and alcohol counselor for many years. He is also an attorney at law specializing in criminal defense and mental health law. Finally, Terry has written several books, including Bought Out and Spent, A Recovery from Compulsive Shopping and Spending. I will be linking Terry's website below for your reference. Welcome, Terry. Oh, thank you, Lisa. Wonderful to be here on a uh, early summer day. Yes, no doubt. Um, would you like to add anything else to that background introduction that I just did? Um, I think you covered it. I, I have been a lawyer uh, since 1992. I practiced full time for about three years. And then through being in my own therapeutic process and recovery in the early 90s, I actually went back to school from 1995 to 1997 when I was 30 to 32 years old. And I got my master's in social work. And from 1997 on, so 24 plus years, I've been a licensed social worker here in Michigan. And I did indeed work in the drug and alcohol field at a local clinic for the first seven years of my social work career until 2004. And then I went into my own private practice 17 years ago to work primarily with uh, compulsive shoplifting and employee theft, um, which um, I'll talk about a little later how I got into that. And then a couple of years later, around 2006, I started to become interested in learning about compulsive shopping and spending. And I began working with that in about 2006. And then maybe about three or four years later, uh, so about 11 years ago, I also got interested in learning more about hoarding. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that too, maybe in a bit. And uh, I've been working with that. So those are the three main uh, kind of disorders that I work with, compulsive stealing in a few different forms compulsive shopping, spending, and compulsive hoarding. So yeah. I am a licensed uh, social worker and uh, certified addiction therapist. Okay, great. And just for the audience, I remembered you from the Oprah show. Some of you guys might recognize him. He's been on <laughs> lots of different television shows yeah. and so forth. But I remember you talking about um, these kind of addictions and- Right, yeah. With Oprah. <laughs> right. That's a whole another little side note how I got on Oprah. I'd actually been blessed to have done uh, some TV and major TV programs prior to 2004 when I was on the Oprah show, but uh, they don't lie when they talk about whatever Oprah touches uh, turns to gold and being on her program helped uh, get me a number of clients uh, for some, I talked about compulsive shoplifting on the Oprah show in 2004, and that helped me uh, leave the clinic where I'd been at for uh, seven years to start my own practice, which I'd been wanting to do for a while. And uh, my first book had been out uh, for about a year at that point in 2003, it came out and that was on, it was called Something for Nothing, um, Shoplifting Addiction Recovery. So Oprah, that was a wonderful experience. And I really did get the Oprah bump. Uh, and I've been doing virtual therapy long before COVID where now it's getting more common. I, I think the genie is out of the bottle and a lot of, a lot of therapists are gonna be offering more services uh, by video and or phone and uh so um but it's been a real pleasure to uh to try to educate the public and uh about some disorders that aren't really very widely recognized or understood or even treated 
Um, mm -hmm. And uh, compulsive shopping and spending is a fascinating topic. Um, and um, it is not yet recognized uh, universally or really much at all quite yet. I think it will be as a legitimate disorder. Um, but Rome isn't built in a day and things take time. But I'm glad you're on the cutting edge with us to really seriously address this problem, which is yeah. a very widespread and growing problem. Yeah, we had spoke earlier how it's not in the DSM. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about that and how do we define it then? Okay, so for people who may not be familiar with what the DSM is, it's called the Diagnostical Statistical Manual of Psychological Disorders, the DSM. And the first edition maybe came out about 100 years ago, roughly, yeah. and about every 20 years they kind of update it. So we're in uh, you know, edition number five as of 2013 when it came out. And it's basically the kind of the, the psychological Bible that mental health practitioners use, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, social workers, and sometimes uh, doctors too, uh, to kind of, you know, uh, describe certain kind of psychological disorders um, that, you know, meet, meet the level of an actual, you know, mental health issue. Um, and they have the different uh, elements or criteria or symptoms in order to, and for insurance purposes, a lot of times uh, they want to, you know, have a DSM code for a particular disorder. Um, and yes, there are a lot of things that are not in it, and it changes over time. Uh, homosexuality used to be in it up until I think uh, the late 50s, early 60s, where they took that out as a psychological disorder. Um, and things come and go. And um, uh, with the stealing part, just as a side note, everybody has heard of the term kleptomania. That has been in there like from the beginning, but it's a very rare kind of condition that uh, affects maybe one half of 1% of the general population. Um, and uh, what I've done as an addiction therapist is try to look at uh, compulsive stealing, compulsive shopping, and hoarding as similar to addictive behaviors because they can at least mimic it. Or my favorite line is they're at least kissing cousins because, you know, what is an addiction but something that we can be in complete denial about, of course, and everybody else can see it or not. It can be hidden. Uh, we can lie about it. We can hide it. Uh, it seems to be long-term. We can go through periods where we stop, but then go back to it. So that can fit a lot for what we're talking about today. But um, in the DSM, I mean, there were a number of things. I think um, in the last edition in 2013, the DSM-5, um, from what I read in the background, a number of disorders were talked about and evaluated to be included in the 2013 DSM-5, but didn't quite make the cut, but maybe they will the next time, which might be in about 10 years or so. So like sex addiction was debated, but not quite, you know, made, making the cut. Um, even video game addiction or internet addiction didn't quite make it into our version, although the international community uh, has what is called the ICD, which is similar to the DSM. Um, the um, International um, Classification of Disorders, they recognize internet addiction and video game addiction. Um, and I believe uh, shopping addiction kind of made it in as a minor conversation, uh, but it hasn't quite been involved in that either. And one of my goals for the next edition is also to, to put forth um, something about stealing behaviors, particularly I deal with shoplifting and employee theft as the main two. I don't really work with grand theft auto or bank robbery or anything like that, but um, and and the you know so you know we're we're all learning and uh, we can't just wait for the medical community you know even with alcoholism AA was started in Akron Ohio in 1935 and the American Medical Association took 20 more years to actually recognize alcoholism 
and then much yes. later drug addiction as a legitimate a legitimate addiction. Yeah, so I, I understand that one of the biggest critiques of the DSM or two is it is antiquated, you know, and maybe the international one is a little more updated and that all the disorders are voted on. And so sometimes you just get outvoted when it needs to be put in there. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. But um, but it's still a, a helpful tool. And frankly, I've been a what is called a private pay provider um, for really the 17 years I've been self-employed. On occasion, I'll work with insurances, but most people find me through an internet search. Most people pay out of pocket. Typically, I'm what I, I'm what I call, I specialize in what is called brief therapy, uh, B-R-I-E-F. And I didn't... Uh, I didn't coin that term, but basically a brief therapy program um, is basically about a three-month program, which to some people, the way they think about it is the minimum amount of time that it takes to get to know the client and have the client feel comfortable with the therapist and begin to kind of uh, talk about the problem and understand at least somewhat, you know, maybe where it's coming from, the different aspects. And it works really well with addiction um, because a lot of treatment programs you know, whether they're outpatient or even inpatient programs, one to three months, um, you know, uh, getting people a foothold in recovery. And then the journey continues, of course, indefinitely. Um, and a lot of the clients that I work with um, have had therapy before, um, often with a skilled therapist, but uh, we're, we're increasingly, for better and worse, becoming a more subspecialized kind of culture, whether you're an auto mechanic, who doesn't necessarily work on all cars, but might work on a certain kind of car particularly, or a doctor specializes in something, a dentist, you know, a therapist now are doing that. So my goal is within about three to four month period, 10 to 11 sessions, including reading some of my books on the topics that we're working on and going over them with me and having a family or a couple session somewhere in there. And I have two different email support groups for clients of mine, private groups where people can be involved in a, uh, a support group environment um, while they're working with me and they can remain on the group indefinitely at no charge. So I've had one group for 11 years for clients of mine who've struggled with compulsive shopping, spending, and or hoarding. And I've had another group for 21 years uh, for people who've had problems with stealing. And some of my clients are on both email groups. And uh, those who regularly read the emails and occasionally post and talk about how they're doing, tend to do better. Um, not only with uh, their primary addiction or addictions, but with their quality of life. And yet I think you and maybe other people who have been in recovery or known people in recovery understand that uh, recovery is a marathon, not a sprint. And there's a, a natural tendency for people after a crisis has passed to kind of slack off on their recovery and stop attending meetings or stop you know, growing or pushing themselves or, you know, making positive changes. And not always, but very often they find themselves back in their addiction or replacing one addiction for another addiction. And, and then they're back to square one. But, um, but I'm very honored to be here. And, you know, particularly after kind of coming through the last year and a quarter of COVID, um, probably most people have read or heard some news story about how addictions really had spiked during this period for a lot of people, either people who never had an addiction, but then stumbled into it, including shopping. Um, drinking went up, drugging went up, gambling went up, um, probably overeating went up. Yeah, um, and, and, and you know the, the irony is like, when people are going through stressful times and COVID brought probably everybody uh, a certain degree of stress, um, 
you know, those are the times we're most vulnerable to numbing out or self-soothing in a way that actually creates more stress and drama eventually. But, uh, you know, so we all have to be on guard. And even people who think they will never have a problem with shopping or spending, because mm -hmm. I've had clients who maybe for many decades of their life, they were, you know, not shopaholics, they managed their money. But my favorite saying is you never know mm. if you think, this will never happen to me. Same thing with hoarding. I've had people who had no problem with clutter hoarding. But as we age, there's wonderful things about aging. I'm about to turn 56. Um, but you know, we're gonna likely have more losses, different health issues, changes in our life. That could be a dissolution of a marriage. It could be the kids leaving the nest, which can be positive, but difficult. We can have friends and family members who get sick and die. We may lose our job or enter retirement. We may move, our finances may change. There's a lot of changes and a lot of, a lot of actual losses, whether people realize or not. So um, I'm, I'm, but no matter what age you are, because a lot of people are beginning to get into shopping at earlier ages. I hear a lot of stories about people who trace it back to the first time they got a credit card. And often that's around age, age 18, but sometimes even earlier. And with the onset of the internet in the last few decades and social media and clever advertising, you can access your addiction 24 seven yes. with the touch of a finger. And that's a concern for everybody, I think. Yes, and you can also just vocally order it. You don't, you can just say, hey, Alexa, order me these Nike exactly. shoes. Exactly, yeah. You know? We, we got to figure out something where we can program Alexa to say, Terry, are you sure you want to order that? <laughs> it's like my Alexa just went off. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Alexa, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. I hope I didn't disorder that. Have a sense of humor. We can have a sense of humor a little bit today, um, even though we're dealing with very serious yes. topics that really can very much cripple people and families and yes. know, societies. But, uh, you know, so I do have a sense of humor because sometimes that lightens the load. And human behavior is kind of curious. Uh, mm -hmm. There are moments where I think it might be healthy to kind of laugh at ourselves a little bit, but also take right action if we really have yeah. a problem. And, and what I understand what you're hearing is that everybody's at risk. If you don't think you're at risk, everybody has the potential to be at yeah, risk for this yeah. at some and point I'm, in life. And I'm not saying that, you know, to be paranoid, but just to be alert mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, we never know. And I've even seen in myself, like how even in the last few years and with COVID, you know, watching more TV, eating a little more, drinking a little more, not, ex you know, it's just, you know, it can be very insidious how addiction can grab a hold of us. Um, and, and more and more people these days um, have struggled with more than one addiction, either at the same time or trading Peter for Paul. And I've even seen that in myself as an addiction therapist where I've gone, oh my God, do I really have an addictive personality? Which is a little term that you know has some controversy about it, whether it exists or not. But, yeah. but I think it can fit for people who um, are extreme type A, or extreme type B. I mean, you know, if we had to divide people up into A or B kind of a little mm -hmm. bit clumsily, but, you know, uh, type A people are really driven. But if you're a high type A, you're, you're going to have more stress, more perfectionism, more putting more pressure on yourself and others. That is a risk factor, obviously genetic risk factors that we may not even be aware of for either mental illness, or there may even be an addiction gene. Um, 
And then of course our culture plays a part, our social group, what is, what is accepted, what is encouraged, the advertising, keeping up with the new Joneses who used to be the neighbors maybe down the block that we would compare ourselves to, but now they are literally the Kardashians and the people who have what looks like have it all. Yeah. You know? And so it, it's full on. And, and I think we live in a highly addictive society where the messages are direct and indirect. Even the advertising jingles over the years, like, I haven't got time for the pain, you know, <laughs> or, you know, just take a pill, or I don't have time to feel. And we're all a busy culture. Like if somebody dies, you know, maybe you're given a little bit of latitude to go to the funeral and have a day off. And, and then it's kind of almost expected without even saying it that you get back to your life quickly. Mm -hmm. you know and a lot of like get over it pick yourself up by the bootstraps and you know I'm all for tough love at, at times but I, I don't think we live in a culture where you know where 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 vulnerability and talking about feelings and dealing with things is is universally valued I think it's like the strong survive we all have problems plow through and then we often need a little crutch or something to take the edge off Yes. And, uh, that happens for a lot of people. Yes. I mean, life is definitely hard. And uh, I think a lot of times people want to escape from it. Sure, and it these too. addictions sometimes are a way to like numb out to some of those uncomfortable feelings. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Um, okay. So can we talk a little bit? I think anything else you want to add to defining shopping addiction? I think you did. Well, okay. Job. Thank you for reminding me. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, Addiction can be defined in a lot of different ways. Um, and it's even been a little bit updated in the latest DSM where they used to call, um, uh, they used to have alcohol addiction. Uh, they would call it either um, alcohol abuse or alcohol dependence. They would, you know, cause some people were kind of abusing it periodically maybe with uh, intervals in between but it was sometimes viewed as a step toward alcohol dependence where more typically somebody would need a drink regularly or more than one drink. And it was really kind of like getting into your system where you were becoming actually dependent and would go through withdrawal. Now they actually call the, the broad category of alcohol and drug issues, they call it substance use disorders. And, um, and also gambling, which had prior to the 2013 addiction was probably one of the few behavioral addictions that was included, gambling in all its different forms. It could be bingo, it could be casino gambling, it could be the one-armed bandit, the slot machine. Yeah. Uh, they, that was called pathological gambling up until 2013 with the DSM-5. And it was in the same category as kleptomania, pyromania, trichlomania, which is hair pulling and excoriation, skin picking. And those were viewed as impulse control disorders. But recently in the DSM-5, they, they moved gambling into the same part of the, of the book that has substance use disorders. And now we call it gambling disorder. And so just to note, so if, if the DSM community, the powers that be who vote this in, are looking at gambling, which is a behavior, not a chemical, uh, as kind of the same kind of process, more or less, like, you know, it's you're you know, you're, you're already, your chemical, your brain chemicals are changing before you've even rolled the dice, you're going to the casino, you're changing, you're going to pour the liquor before it even gets in your system, you're already going through changes, you'd be, it's a whole ritual. But, and, and what, how they define addiction now is, um, it's a little different, but they focus a lot on cravings, 
they still focus on some kind of withdrawal symptoms. Like if, if, if you are trying not to do the behavior or use the chemical um, and you're, you're feeling out of sorts, you're feeling moody, you're having trouble sleeping, you're having trouble concentrating, you're irritable, things like that. So they look at craving and that. And then like in the past, they also look at, is this causing negative consequences in your life? You may be in complete denial about it. Yeah. People often are. Um, but yet you continue to do it, you know? Yeah. So the old joke, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and pardon to the vegetarians and vegans in your audience, if it tastes like a duck, it might yeah. be a duck. So most people know that an addiction is something that is chronic, meaning it, you know, it's not just, you have to kind of have the, the value of time to, to track it. I mean, it doesn't give you a specific time period, but if, if you've been having trouble with it for a year or more, uh, mm -hmm. and we really, if we can catch it in the early stages rather than wait a decade or two, yeah please do but and and things that um um you know they they do give kind of um some people describe it as a rush or a high some people describe it as relief some people say i'm overwhelmed and it kind of numbs me out it, it all does the same thing whether you're putting a chemical or food into your body or you're doing a behavior because our brains are wired to pump out chemicals that yeah make us feel good yeah but uh, so that's kind of, so with shopping, now here's the, here's the key. I'm a little long-winded, but I apologize. <laughs> so with a lot of addictions, and I will use drugs, alcohol, and gambling as an example, the gold standard for treatment and recovery remains total abstinence. Now, there are some rare exceptions where people may be, I'm not a holy roller. I'm always, I try not to be absolutist in my thinking. Uh, there are some people who can return to moderate usage of chemicals or alcohol, but not, not a whole lot. And, and likewise with gambling. But with shopping, and by the way, with my stealing clients, I usually use the same kind of thing. Our goal is abstinence. So even if you were a heavy shoplifter, it's still not very prudent or wise to shoplift even a pack a of every now and then yeah it still be considered a relapse and a dangerous thing that could you know but with the hoarding and with the shopping spending the goal isn't necessarily to completely stop shopping or spending that's not very realistic and also with hoarding the goal is not to like you know clear out your whole entire home and become a minimalist not realistic so so it gets a little harder to define um but but the thing remains, um, is shopping or spending causing you problems? And again, we're trying to break through the denial with sometimes some questionnaires if people are honest. So you'll ask things, you know, uh, are you having trouble like uh, with paying your bills or are you in debt because of your shopping or spending? And the majority of my clients over the course of time have said that, but not all. Mm -hmm. Another one is, are you having arguments or problems in your relationships because of shopping spending? Again, that's a common one and often one that brings people to therapy. You know, most people are going to, if they're even lucky enough to get into therapy recovery, it usually is a crisis or a crisis. Uh, another one is, is it affecting your family or your children? So sometimes I'll hear like, oh my God, my, my, my son or daughter is turning into a monster. Maybe I've overindulged them and now they, they want everything. Or, um, and then is, are you losing time in other areas of your life because the time you're spending on shopping? So are your social life, is it becoming contracted? Are you missing appointments? Are you, is your health declining? Are you, you know, things like that. And, um, it, you know, and, and are you becoming preoccupied, preoccupied with it where you can't even concentrate on things because you're thinking about 
you know, wanting to shop or that next deal or whatever. So, um, and then there's a lot of hiding and lying and secrecy. Um, there's a term I didn't coin it called financial infidelity. Mm. And I think you may have heard of that term or come across it maybe in your research, but um, that uh, it's a funny term, but it's real because I've had a lot of couples who are on the brink um, of divorce because of financial infidelity, which can look like various things, but a lot of times it's lying about where, how you're spending your money. And in mm -hmm. certain cases, it can be so extreme where the person who's in charge of the finances may have the shopping spending problem and they can have drained their entire life savings like a gambler and the partner doesn't know it until way down the line when they are ready to retire or ready to you know, send the kids to college and they realize not only are they broke, but they're in the red. And for many people, they, they, they've actually said to me, the partners, because I do the couples sessions sometimes too, they'll say, I would have preferred my wife or husband had had an actual affair wow. to this. Because now all this that I've worked hard for, our future is like completely shattered. Yeah. So I don't know if I answered the question, but it's like, yeah. but shopping can, t and, there, and there are different kinds of shopping that can be, yeah. you know, like I have people, I'll, I'll get into that. Like, so a lot of people say, but I'm a bargain shopper. Yeah. And there's a, a couple of funny sayings where um, they said, uh, boy, we are sure going broke saving all this money, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. or you have to spend money to save money. And I've known bargain shoppers who, you know, it's easier to rationalize because they say, like, I'm not buying Gucci and high end stuff. Uh, but if you keep doing that day in and day out, it, it will it will affect your finances and more. And I've known people who've gone bankrupt and lost their homes and gotten divorced because they were bargain shoppers. Wow. Um, and, and frankly, that would be the one that I would have to be careful of for myself. I don't identify, at least not yet, as having a shopping problem, but I caught myself in the early stages, uh, probably about 10, 15 years ago when Groupon came out. I was buying up all these Groupons and my wife was like, hey, what, what's going on here? You know, you're buying Groupon. We haven't even used the ones yet. And, you know, and I had to, whoa, whoa, whoa. And Amazon which I still use, but, you know, I was getting all those deals and, you know, getting yeah. things, but not using them. And again, my wife was like, Whoa, what's going on here? We're getting a lot of packages, you know? Yeah. Um, and then some people are, uh, have a pattern uh, and you can have more than one of these different kinds of shopping spending, but some are what we call codependent, meaning they're spending money more on others than themselves. It could be their kids. It could be friends, family, the neighbors, uh, coworkers, um, their partner, um, and believe me, I'm not against doing that, but if it's getting out of whack, right. uh, you know, it's still going to cause problems financially and relationally. If people are like, whoa, you know, I don't need all these gifts. What are you doing? Like, I'm feeling kind of awkward. And again, people can rationalize. They said, well, I'm not being selfish. I'm, I'm buying right. for I'm other kidding. people. <laughs> um, and then we have a, a couple others, um, a couple of the big ones that I deal with. Um, the, the largest one I deal with, and I'd say about 80% of my clients are female, across the board with the stealing issues, with the hoarding issue. And research shows that men and women have these problems that I deal with about at equal levels. So shoplifting, employee theft, over shopping, overspending, and hoarding. Men and women are almost equal, you know, because I think there's a stereotype out there that women are, all women are shopaholics or the majority of shop. Yeah, that may have been true for a number of reasons more culturally, because I think actually women traditionally were the ones taking care of the home and shopping. And yes, right. women uh, 
do stimulate the economy with the, my, my joke is probably most guys would be happy to still be living in a cave with just a fire. But, you know, maybe one woman said, hey, can we decorate the cave or get a better, ca bigger cave? We got a few more kids. And so God bless you guys. But, um, but men, I think with the internet, mm -hmm. that has been the great equalizer because many men especially gravitate toward that for some reason. They get overwhelmed in stores, though I do have men who overshop in stores. And, and, and I, I like shopping in stores now too, still like bargain stores particularly, but the internet, um, as a side note, a little joke, when my wife and I got married about 19 years ago and she was dragging me to do like um, uh, shopping at Bed Bath & Beyond, like the wedding registry and oh, yeah. I'm like, oh God. And then like, they were brilliant even 20 years ago almost. Like they give you this little portable gun right. And they gave me this little uh, gun-shaped uh, thing scanner where uh -huh. we would find something and scan the barcode code and it would go into our online registry. And I was having a blast with that. <laughs> so, yeah. but, um, but the thing is, um, so here's one I deal with a lot. It's called image, image shopper. Hmm. So, and that can be, um, and again, uh, I think men can be concerned about their image. So we're talking often about clothing, jewelry, uh, accessories, shoes, cosmetics, um, and I'm not opposed. Yeah, and I'm not opposed to looking good, but you can see how it can get out of whack and become very yeah. expensive very quickly. Um, yeah. Or it could be for your home, home furnishings. Uh, it could be some of my clients are more spendaholics where they don't necessarily buy a lot of stuff, but they they overspend on a few big ticket items like even right off the bat, and I'm not here to judge or tell anybody how to live their life, but right off the bat, if you buy a home that is more, that maybe you can get a loan for or whatever, but a mortgage for, but it's like really kind of stretching your budget. And then yeah. you decorate it nice, or you want to have this great wedding, which again, not here to judge people, but people often start off in the red from the get-go, from their marriage, whatever, or they buy a, a $70,000 car when maybe their budget would mandate something half that price. Yeah. And then people often, you know, so this whole image thing, whatever it looks like, clothing, the car, the home. And I think the new Joneses again, I think, and then people often want to upgrade, you know, after a short period of time, I need a better, you know, so there's something going on and the image can be that I want to look good to other people. I want to look good to myself, sometimes one or the other. And then to figure out kind of where that comes from, part of it might be, you know, the culture in general, but sometimes those messages are, are in family and I'm not here to blame anybody, but a lot of times you'll find that people say, well, you know, my mom or my dad was really into image. And so it's just interesting. So this image shopping thing, yeah. there's also trophy, a trophy shopper where people can um, be on the hunt for a particular item. It could be something expensive and it, it can take a lot of time and energy. And when they find it, they're really gratified, but not for too long. And then they're on to the next they're on the hunt for. So be a kind of pattern. Um, another one can be the collector shopper where um, you get kind of obsessed about, I love this designer. I have to have everything he or she designs or uh, I love collecting books. So all kinds of books and you know that could take time, energy and money and space. Does the collector um, shopper kind of bleed over into a hoarder? Like those kind of go together? Very often and bargain shoppers too, because you could get a lot of stuff for a little money. Yeah, there's a certain kind of risk factor with there becoming clutter. And then there's what is called, I don't like the term, but it's called bulimic, bulimic mm -hmm. shopper, or sometimes they call it um, um, a returnaholic, 
where some people, whether at stores or on the TV shopping network or online, they buy a lot of things, maybe not quite knowing what they want. It comes in the mail or they bring it home and then they have to go through these decisions about, wait a minute, I can't afford all this. I got to send it back or this doesn't fit. And, and it takes a lot of time and energy and they can be in denial too, because they will often say, like an actual food bulimic, they will kind of in their minds at least, and sometimes people say, well, yeah, I'm eating a lot, but I'm purging it somehow too. So yeah. I'm counterbalancing it. Well, the same thing with shopping, people will say, but I'm not keeping it all, I'm sending it back. But after a while, what happens, it, 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 takes, so, it takes so much time, not everything goes back. And then while you're sending things back or taking back, you see other things and, and it just becomes a revolving door so it's kind of interesting to kind of see the different shopping patterns and people can have more than one of these um, that, you know, like what's going on there? What's, what's the hook here? Mm -hmm. So we know with the uh, image shopping, there's a hook about image. Mm -hmm. with the bargain, there's something about getting the bargain. That's the real, it's more than about the stuff. I mean, actually yeah. people get more of the high from the buying than the actual thing. Yeah. It's these are like your coupon cutters, like people that love to go to the grocery store and get triple coupon and yeah, yeah. yeah. So I I had a shoplifting problem. Uh, that's how I got interested in working with stealing behaviors and to a lesser degree, a little stealing from a couple of jobs I had part time in college. And it was, you know, the things I was taking were things I could afford. And it wasn't really about the thing, but it was about the ritual and the feeling I got when I took something. Um, and I got in trouble for a couple of times, um, you know, arrested. And then I finally got help at age 25, but I was living a secret life. Nobody knew I was doing this behavior and I was a real giver, like real generous and otherwise law abiding. So it was kind of confusing to me. And eventually my mom, when I kind of had to spill the beans and get into therapy, but, but there were a lot of things driving it. And, and even with gambling, people think it's all about the money. The money is merely a marker of if you're up or down, but when you win, you continue to gamble. When you lose, you continue to gamble. So like one is too many, a thousand is never enough, as they say in AA. And it's more about, for, for some people, that particular kind of ritual or that behavior yeah. gives them the fix or the high. And we don't know, you know, something with the brain chemistry or the personality or whatever. We don't always know why one person gravitates toward a particular addiction. I kind of look at it as like, you know, I don't know if we're going to have buffets again, maybe eventually with the COVID, but you know, like a smorgasbord of, of different things. You go to a buffet and you're trying to figure out, you know, what to eat. And I don't know that I'm unique, but like I try to do it like, okay, I'm going to start with a salad and work my way up and have a little bit of everything. But, but some people go right for the prime rib. Others go right for the dessert table. Some go right to the starches, like the potatoes and whatever. And, you know, it, it's kind of like there's a buffet table of various potential addictions out there. Yeah. I don't think we choose them necessarily consciously, but we gravitate toward certain things for whatever reason, often just by trial and error accidentally, um, or by impulse to try, you try a, a new drug, or you try this, or you try online shopping, and not everybody's hooked right away, but a lot yeah. of people report it, yeah. So this reminds me of, you know, that term functional alcoholic, where yeah. people drink, and they're like, hey, I'm paying my bills, I'm meeting my social yeah. and work you know, relationships and it's not having any adverse effects. At least they don't think so. Right. Can that same thing be applied with shoppers? Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, because yeah, I think most people have turned, heard the term functional alcoholic or we could call it functional addict. 
some people don't even like the term addict, but I think we're getting more familiar with it and it has a little less stigma, but sometimes there's still a lot of stigma. And I would tell you that probably the majority of my clients are functional addicts, meaning most of them are married, doing a halfway decent job in the marriage. Most of them have children doing a halfway decent job raising the kids. Most of them are working or college educated or, you know, they would appear on the surface like they're, you know, and that, that can make it a little trickier to treat because there is that thing inside that we talk about actually, you know, and then sometimes I work with people who've lost everything or they're about to, you know, so I mean, there's a range, but most people are, are middle to upper middle class. I've also worked with very wealthy people and you're right. They can, they can say, but it isn't that bad yet. And the, the old joke is, but, but they can also greatly minimize for their own self-protection because it, it really can be quite confronting to admit you have a problem or that you really have a problem or, oh my God, you are out of control. I mean, it, it can, you know, really be, but you're right with shopping and, um, Dr. April Benson out of New York, uh, who recently passed away at age 70. Um, she was a friend and mentor of mine when I got interested in, in learning about this. Uh, I went online and she was like the only one I could find out of New York. And she had written a few books and she did like a therapist training that I did uh, by phone with her. Um, and I got to know her when I visited New York for, for business and pleasure and uh, got to meet with her uh, a handful of times and we kept in touch. But um, she referred to shopping addiction as the smiled upon addiction, hmm. meaning, uh, you know, first of all, it's totally legal. It's greatly encouraged, you know, be a good American shop, help the economy. Um, uh, everybody does it to some degree, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, to varying degrees, but everybody shops or spends, even if you're going to a grocery store, I mean, you know, because you know, people can overspend on groceries or they can overspend on activities like dining out too often or too many concerts or elaborate vacations or, and I'm not here to micromanage, but sometimes people aren't buying things, but they're overspending on, you know, experiences. Yeah. And I would, frankly, personally, I would rather, as we get older, especially, we probably have enough stuff for the time being. It doesn't mean we won't buy things, but I, you know, sometimes people want to spend their hard-earned money or want to have some fun, but I often will tell people, uh, maybe you can spend on experiences that you can enjoy with or without a partner or family, and you still want to keep it within a range, but but yeah, it's a smiled upon addiction. And we do have, there's a website and a company called retailtherapy.com. And I have a sense of humor, you know, but, uh, um, you know, and people use it. I'm just engaging in a little retail therapy. Yeah. When the going gets tough, the tough goes shopping. I'm a shopaholic and proud. And I think the culture is getting a little bit more sensitive in general, because I remember about 10 years ago around Christmas time here, and I'm in Metro Detroit, I got in the mail a, a, a like a, a flyer, a, a kind of a, a hard paper flyer from this very quaint Tony town called Birmingham, Michigan, about 15, 20 minutes away. And they have a ton of great little shops and everything. Their holiday flyer literally said, it was the holidays, right? Oh, come all ye shopaholics. And uh, I remember thinking, oh my God, you know, would you like, if you were advertising for your bar, would you say, hey, drunks, Hey, alcoholics, come on down. Or gamblers, you know, the casinos, if they're promoted, would they say, pathological gamblers, problem gamblers, we love you. (laughs) You So I I haven't seen anything quite like that. I think we're getting a little more sensitive and aware of that, but it's still, it's very easy to hide um, because, uh, and, and very, well, first of all, if you live alone, which some of my clients do, it's very easy to hide. But even if you're, you're living with a partner or family, you could hide this stuff. 
people also sometimes are actually putting things in storage units or they're they're having a, a separate PO box where the visa bills come to or the packages arrive. That, that's part of the financial infidelity, but it, it's very insidious. And again, as I said, our goal is not to completely stop shopping, but kind of like the term emotional eating, which I think people have heard of. And we've all probably done a little bit of it. If it's an every now and then thing, you break up with your boyfriend, you, you polish off uh, a pint of Haagen-Dazs, probably not a problem. We all like comfort food. But when it gets to be a pattern and people are emotionally shopping, meaning they don't really need anything, but they want a feeling. And I have a lot of clients who do that. And then wash, rinse, repeat. If that becomes your primary or one of your primary go-tos to soothe, if you're bored, if you're angry, if you're lonely, if you're stressed, if you're sad, if you're anxious, I mean, it can do it all. Like you said, an escape. And, and yeah. with the internet, and I'm a realist, most people are going to need to be on the internet either for their work mm-hmm. and or their social life. But we've got to kind of put in some parameters and then figure out, okay, if we're trying to wean from this a bit, you know, what do we fill the void with? Like, what do we do with our time, our energy? And that's where it gets creative. And part of it is therapy and reading books about the disorder and getting educated. And part of it is being involved in a support group to fill up a little time and know that you're not alone. And, and I was kind of shocked actually on just one more note, and then I'll go back to you. When I, I first started working with stealing and I could understand the shame of, of stealing behavior, you know, particularly because yeah. it's illegal. Yep. Immoral, thou shall not steal. Often it was hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody wants to be labeled a thief. I could get that. But I was a little amazed when I first started working with shopping addiction at how much shame there actually was for people who had a shopping problem, even though it's totally legal. And I, I got to learn that, you know, some of the stigma is, uh, you know, whether whether you're judging yourself or you're worried some, if I'm a shopaholic, it means I'm superficial, I'm materialistic, I'm irresponsible with finances, I'm immature, I'm selfish, um, I'm um, crazy, I'm um, a bad money manager, all, all these different things. And, but really it boils down to when, when people intuitively know that they're out of control in that area, they don't want people to know they're out of control. Most of us want, I, I yeah. like it. So like you could be very, in control or managing all aspects of your life except this one. And that creates a lot of shame and a lot of stigma. If people found out they would have, the fear is they would have a whole different opinion of me. And, and sometimes that's true, but, but, but often not. I think a lot of people have opened up and told family or friends. And, and, and a lot of times people are very receptive. They go, you know what? I've had a bit of that problem myself. Sometimes they minimize it, but sometimes they go, you know, you're not a horrible person, get help. Yeah. Um, so um, getting to the root of why people do this, and I know you've kind of sprinkled that throughout here, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I know that there's like a habit forming situation that's happening. Maybe it's like it starts off light, but then if you keep doing it and keep doing it, you, it becomes like a full on habit that's hard to break for yeah. many reasons. And so to change that overnight, it's probably not going to happen. Probably not. Now, you know, again, as I said earlier, um, there are exceptions to every rule. And as a matter of fact, I've had many clients say, what's going on here? I smoked for 25 years, they'll say, and then I you know, made a decision to stop one day or whatever, or you know, it took maybe a couple of days and like I never turned back. Or they'll say sometimes they did that with drinking. I mean, those are rare, but they can't happen. Uh, or even if they say it took me a long time to stop drinking and I went to treatment or whatever, but I haven't had a drink in like 15 years. Why can't I do this with shopping? I've been to therapy, I've tried a few support groups. 
every addiction is different. Like apples and oranges, you can't just say, you know, and we don't always know why, but you can't just say just because you can stopped one addiction, or at least for the time being, or maybe long term, that it applies to everything, you know. And, and shopping, because it is such a part of our life, next to eating, and often when we eat, we have to buy, you know, I mean, unless you're going to food bank and getting free food. So shopping is a very common activity. We have to, on some level, do some of it. But um, but yeah, it, it, um, it can be very difficult to figure out what healthy shopping is. So I use a model that I kind of piece together from different places. But um, so, it, and, and we can all use this, whether you think you have a problem or not. So the, the model, like, if you just ask yourself, what does healthy shopping look like? And, and for you, and it'll be different for everybody, but one category is to evaluate difference between want and need. Mm -hmm. And that's easier said than done. It sounds really simple, but a lot of people are thinking they need things, but it's really a want. Now, I'm not going to say we only buy things that we need. Occasionally, we want things we want, but we have to readjust our idea of want and need, you know, and kind of get a little more clear on that. The, the next thing is, it, is it affordable or unaffordable? And that sounds very simple, but it's not. So some people who are maxed out on their credit cards will still think that they're shopping and can afford it because they can just get another credit card or they can start taking money out of their 401k or whatever they, in their mind, it's affordable if I have any way to get it legally. Mm -hmm. And we have to kind of reshape that and find out, well, what does affordable mean? And if you have a partner, how do you both, you got to kind of try to meet in the middle at least. Mm -hmm. Another one is, um, uh, do I have room for it? You know, do I have space for it? And that can be a whole thing too. And again, it's not for me to dictate, you know, how cluttered or uncluttered your home is, but if you're already acknowledging that you got a lot of clutter and yeah, I guess you can shove it under the couch, but do you really have room for it? Or, or is your partner barking at you and saying, whoa, whoa, we've got enough here. And the kids like they, what are they learning? You know? So that is one. And then is it, is it emotional shopping? Like, are we really trying to fill a void or soothe ourselves? And maybe we need to do that in a more healthy way, or is it more kind of level-headed and I'm not saying that shopping should not be a pleasurable experience. Like you should just be a robot and say, I'm going to get this. And, you know, but, but, you know, if you get to know yourself, you can kind of say, you know, I, you know, you start to say, well, you know, I'm feeling a little lonely on a Friday night. I think I'll just, you know, or, or, you know, maybe you can learn how to say, you know, I need to be in a pretty good space. So I know that I'm not emotionally shopping or emotionally eating. Um, that's one. And then the other one is um, being careful about impulse shopping. So be willing to wait. Even if you are online, park it in the cart for 24 hours at least and sleep on it. So everything's an urgency. I got to get this now. The sale will be over. It's a flash sale. And the advertisers are really wiring us, just like advertising, fear of loss, and to slow down the Christmas time. Oh, the best. There's deals yeah. every day of the year. You know Maybe. what I noticed though? If you put it in your cart, the next day they send you an email and they say, hey, don't forget you bought they this. They are on it. They, send they you are an email on it. A week later, here's 10% off. You know, no, like they, they, they are very keen to how to. Yeah, they're, 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 look, I don't fault them, but they're no different than a drug dealer. Yes. You know, they're like, hey, guess what we got in here? Try a little list here. We'll give you a half off or we'll give you even a freebie. Come on yeah. back. I mean, it, it, it's insidious. So just this model of, so be more need oriented than want oriented or think about that. Affordability, what does that really mean? You know, maybe have a conversation with your financial advisor or your partner or think about it. 
Um, mm -hmm. Do I have room for it? Um, is this emotional or is this more level-headed and thought out? And is this impulsive or uh, do I really need it now? Is there really an urgency for it now? Maybe I can wait. And a mm -hmm. lot of times if you do wait, you, you may think on it and you may say, no, I, I really didn't need that after all. I mean, I have that experience. I park things in my cart and probably about 75% of the time, I don't buy what I you know, parked in my cart for one day, two days, 10 days, whatever. Yeah. So it's, that's kind of a, a, but, and you can, you can enjoy that, but, it, but if you're really addicted, you're probably going to blow through it. And if there's a lot of these underlying issues, mm -hmm. loss, trauma, um, those are the, the two yeah. big loss and trauma, but just like, you know, low self-esteem, um, you know, being driven, uh, you know, outwardly, you know, to, to fill a void versus inwardly, maybe you don't have great relationships. There's a lot of different issues yeah. that we try to poke at. Yeah. So what about like buyer's remorse? How does that fit in there? Because I would imagine sometimes people have short-term memory. They forget how much they regret buying stuff, oh, yeah. you yeah. know? Yeah. Well, yeah. People often do have that um, in a similar way that a, an alcoholic may have a, a hangover. Um and actually, um, very often the people I work with who shoplift, even when they're not caught, they often after they've done it, and I had that experience, it's like, what did I do? I'm so stupid. What am I putting myself at risk for? Oh, I'm, not, I'm crazy. I got to stop this. And a lot of times they do have that. Um, uh, maybe not in the beginning, um, but, but as it's becoming problematic and you know, people at least are not completely in denial about it, they often have that. But then what happens too is then it becomes a cycle. So that you feel bad about it and you feel, pardon my French, like you're a piece of crap. Um, and then like that just kind of makes you want to shop more. Yeah. It's kind of like you've got, you know, you're trying not to eat as much and you, you, you have the one piece of chocolate cake and you're already a little mad at yourself that you even had that before dinner and you're like, oh, why did I do that? Well, might as well finish off the rest yeah. of the cake. You know, yeah. so people, you know, you get into this vicious cycle of addiction where the shame or the disappointment or the remorse of doing it then feeds you just wanting to veg out or zone out or numb out and do more of it. And then all the problems that come now create more stresses. So addiction is a Trojan horse. It's powerful, whatever form it takes, because it does very quickly and consistently and fairly predictably give mm -hmm. you momentarily relief, momentary relief. But then like a python, it gradually wraps itself around you and strangles you. And then you, you know, and then you're like, help, you know, and we're trying to, we're trying to have people get help earlier rather than later. We'll, we'll take you wherever you are and not judge you. But if we can educate ourselves and our children, now I, my wife and I don't have kids. We've got a four-legged baby, um, a dog named Bambi, but, and I'm not blaming any parent, but I hear two main things uh, in most of my clients. It's either some level of a family member having spoiled or overindulged the child and or some level of the child felt deprived like they wanted things and they heard no all the time and their friends and kids down the block had this clothing or that toy or whatever and sometimes you're having one parent overindulge and one deprive and it's very confusing and if i were a parent uh that's probably the hardest thing to do in and that particular issue where i don't think most parents want to either spoil or overindulge or deprive them. There's a middle ground and it's a moving target and every kid is different at different ages. So you won't get it perfect, but keep an eye on it because that, that can be something that's passed down from 
grandparent, you know, spoiling, giving a kid everything they want, and then you turn them into a monster. There may be other issues. And then, and then saying no all the time is, is not, not fair or good either. Um, So that's an issue I hear a lot of, um, or, or just one more too, where I think this has been happening now for a few decades. Um, As more women went into the workplace, which is a great thing, um, uh, you know, so both the father and the mother were working and often tired when they both got home and um, maybe felt a little guilty that they didn't spend as much time or energy with the kids. So, you know, it's easy to buy them something or put them in front of the computer or whatever. And, and, you know, um, so I think a lot of gift giving you know, or making up through that rather than, yeah, a lot of guilt. And, and, and it was probably well-intended, but a little short-sighted and it kind of created, you know, I don't know how old you are. I'm going to be 56, but so I remember a time, and I don't know if this was pretty typical of most Americans, but I would get new stuff uh, on my birthday, around the holidays, on occasion for a special achievement, and maybe fall when I was going back to school and grown a little bit and needed a, a few articles of clothing. But other than that, we played outside and you know, we did what we did and uh, it, it, it has changed where, yeah. and I think with everything where drinking has increased, drugging, we've got a prescription pill epidemic, we've got an obesity epidemic where we would have a special meal. And I'm not lecturing and saying we can necessarily go back to that, but you know, you'd have a big meal on special occasions or a holiday and you'd probably gain a couple pounds, but you'd, you'd work it off because you're exercising. But now it's like people have figured out why wait <laughs> I can have uh, this object, I can have the food, I can have a drink, I can take a pill, I can go online and get sex. It's like immediate instant gratification. And that is a recipe for disaster because we need, one of the hallmarks of maturity is being able to delay gratification. Doesn't mean you completely starve or deprive yourself, but learning how to be patient. Mm-hmm. And we're a, generally a culture, and I raise my hand too. I, you know, we we gotta, and it, it, it's alarming. Yes, no, most definitely. Um, this makes me think about. Uh, I spent some time in Spain, and when you go to the store, there's no return policy. So if you buy something, you have to think really hard. Do I really want this, or maybe I don't right. because I can't return it? But then you get to the American culture where we have a yes. setup completely completely different and somewhat toxic because it does contribute to some of these issues. Well, exactly. You know, I hadn't known that Spain had done that. I, I was in Spain for a few days but back when I was 22 and graduated from college and went to Madrid, Barcelona, Pamplona for the running of the bulls. I didn't get into the, the actual <laughs> the street and run with bulls, but I didn't know that. But I had heard that places like China and maybe even Japan, like in, in the East, but but I wouldn't be surprised if other, right. They, yeah, like I got a friend who's a Chinese American and he, he he told me about that about 10 years ago. What is this with Americans? You can return things. In my country, you know, you can't do that. You made it just, I'm like, really? You know, I said, like, gee. And I kind of thought like maybe that was harsh, but maybe there's a kind of logic to it that actually is somewhat beneficial. But yeah. now a lot of, from what I've tracked, um, some, but not all um, uh, companies, um, retail companies particularly are, are shifting from a very liberal return policy to a little more strict in part because some people have been abusing it. Yes. You know, like I think LL Bean, if I remember reading about a year or so ago, like you could bring something back or even REI, like at any time 
And they found that people were kind of abusing that, you know, and like, okay, they enjoyed it for a year or two, and then they bring it back, it's lightly worn or whatever, they make up some complaint. And then um, there are people who, um, yeah, it was taking a lot of time and energy, and they were kind of losing money. And it was, so the trend is to be, but there, but still probably as our culture, and I don't know about Canada, we're our nearest neighbor, they have similar, but, but uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know that I would want to go to a no returns policy in our culture necessarily, but, but I think having some parameters, um, but that, that's interesting, right? Yeah. Um, so how do you know what somebody's kind of healed from their addiction, their shopping addiction? Good question. Um, so I kind of look at it more like a, a journey rather than an endpoint. So I, I prefer the term recovering rather than recovered, although I'm not a holy roller, as I like to say. Hey, I'm open to miracles. If some people feel like I am totally a, a cured or a healed alcoholic, I mean, that may be. Um, but I think for most people looking at it as kind of an ongoing journey, likewise, again, with healing. But um, so here, here's, I was just talking to a prospective client today. Um, well, she was talking to me more about having a shoplifting problem. And she was saying, you know, do you work with trauma? Because I've been working a lot with trauma and my therapist, but we're not getting anywhere and I'm still shoplifting. And I said, well, I'm not going to say I'm right about this, but here's my philosophy. The healing will take place kind of slowly over time. Let's kind of understand the addiction and get you kind of sober. And then we have to define what that means. And so for a shopaholic, um, we want to kind of, you know, I want to know what the core issues are. I want to know, like, if you've been abused or neglected, or you think you have, or traumatic events, or low self-esteem. I want, I want to know all that. I think that's important to kind of understand how the addiction evolved. But the healing, probably on a deeper level, some of it natural if you're sober, some of it intentional by diving deeper. Once you have some sobriety and you're more centered and stable to deal with the difficult issues. But that's typically because I do a lot of brief therapy. But I do work, you know, I keep in touch with a lot of my clients who I even have worked short term with through the email group, or sometimes people will do another round of therapy with me or a little tune up here. And we will dive deeper, but they I often encourage them once they're once they have the addiction managed and then also hopefully have not like traded with another one. Yep that they're, they're, they're thinking more clearly, their self-esteem improves, the chaos in their life has somewhat subsided, then it's you know up to them if they wanna really dive deeper and, and, and heal because um, there's, you, know, you, you may have heard this term, there's a difference between abstinence and recovery. Or in other words, people have probably heard the term dry drunk. So you can be an alcoholic who is not drinking and that may be somewhat improvement but they may not be really changing, growing, healing. They may be white knuckling it. Uh, they may be trading addictions. Or in some cases, uh, I've heard people say, you know, I liked you better when you were drinking. Please get some therapy or go back to your meetings because you're miserable. You're sober, but you're miserable. And the same thing with shopping. So, you know, I mean, so the healing can take place over time. So I've been in recovery from both shoplifting and codependency for about 31 years, since I was 25, I'll be 56. And I'm still healing from different things. So it's an ongoing journey that some of it is natural. Some of it, I have to kind of work on it with therapy or something, you know, myself. So it, you know, when you ask, when are you healed? But, but the signs you would generally see that are encouraging, and I think this is true for anything is, and I hear this, the obsessions begin to lessen. 
Um, and that's a good sign. It doesn't mean it's going to stick because it can be a, a, you know, it doesn't go like, you know, just in a straight line journey, but it could, but, but when people are saying, you know what, I'm, I'm feeling like it's not, I'm not as preoccupied with good. That's a good sign. Hopefully it continues. Um, or they go, you know what, I'm starting to deal with the clutter or I'm finally being, getting real about money and finances, or my husband and I are beginning to talk again. Um, so there's these little signs of hope or health that we look for in various ways. And sometimes I'll ask that question just as like a, a kind of a taking of the pulse. I'll, you know, on a typical session, I might say, you know, this is, I might say, this is a funny question, but have you noticed anything different about your life in the last week? And they might say, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm not thinking anything particular, but like the way, the way you're um, experiencing work, the way you're experiencing your children, the way you're experiencing your partner, the way you're, you know, in, you know, or, or nature or anything. And and almost invariably, they'll say, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, I got very angry at my child the other day, and normally I would yell or, or maybe, you know, spank a little bit, and I didn't. I took a breath. Mm-hmm. I said, well, let's, let's, let's appreciate that. And that, that's, so what do you, how do you feel about that? Well, I, yeah, I was kind of surprised that I didn't go off on him, but I, I, I was happy I didn't. And, that, you know, so, so healing is one little thing at a time yeah. uh, in different ways. I had a, a grief specialist on here a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. and she talked about how unresolved grief was sometimes at the heart of a lot of addictions, and sure. people may not be making that connection. And right. the oh, thing yeah. is, grief is inevitable, and it comes throughout our life. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's great. I'd love to. Uh, I'll I'll check that out if it's up. You know, because yeah, for sure. Yeah, because um, yeah, like I said earlier, grief and trauma, and they can be interrelated. You know, some losses are traumatic and some maybe not traumatic, it's just a, kind of a, a grieving and some traumas involve grief and maybe not or whatever, but those are the two biggies. And um, so I talk a lot about that, you know, kind of early on and trying to get to, you know, I kind of look at therapy a little bit. Um, this is not gonna be surprising. I kind of, the metaphors I use is either like an onion, onion layers. So people come for maybe a specific problem like an addiction. And I call that the top layer of the onion that it is a problem in itself and it has to be understood, but in one way, it's kind of a symptom of a lot of the other onion layers. And what are those onion layers? Those can be different losses and some deeper and longer and more severe than others, traumas, low self-esteem, and and other things, just like things that when people have depression, which may or may not be actually diagnosed or treated, anxiety, um, eating disorders, ADD, OCD, you know, there's all those things too, onion layers. And then there might be a core, you know, we, everybody's heard the term core issue and, and, and people often have more than one of them, but when we try to maybe sense what the core is and it could be something as simple as I am unlovable or I feel unlovable or the world isn't safe um, or nobody's gonna be there to take care of me. I have to do everything on my own or some version we try to, I try to tease out what what the, what the core belief or even truth is going on. And most people have more than a few of them. Um, so I definitely agree. I'm, I'm big on working through that. And there are things I can do even in brief therapy, have people talk about it with me, have them read a book about grief or watch a video, learn the five stages of grief, Kubler-Ross or something like that. And when they're on the email group, they're gonna invariably hear about other people periodically talking about their losses, um, both past and maybe going on now. And I know that's been a big issue in my life is dealing with all kinds of different losses and 
impending losses. I have a mom who's 82, who's had Alzheimer's for about five, six years. So that's mm-hmm. kind of like a long goodbye. Um, you know, my dad died when he was 53 and I was 27. And I just visited the the grave and put, a, you know, a little flower or stone on the grave, you know, just over Father's Day. It was around his birthday too. And so grief takes many forms. And, and again, as I think I said earlier, most of the time we don't know what to do with it or we've had multiple yeah. griefs. They pile up and... Yeah. Yeah. And whether you want to say we're filling a void, you know, um, you know, instead of dealing with it. And, and, and I don't think we live in a culture that really normalizes it. We need to normalize grief. I mean, it's it's here. It's inevitable. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, deal with it. and even you know, I'm not getting necessarily political mm-hmm. or anything, but there's, you know, there's a lot of turmoil in our country and people feel anxiety about it, whatever quote unquote side you're on and the environment and this whole COVID has brought a lot of grief for a lot of people. People have lost their businesses. They've lost loved ones. I mean, man. And, 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 and I, and somebody did bring up a a commentator how, um, you know, during the COVID, like even the health experts or whatever, you know, didn't necessarily, they, they, try to tell you how to stay safe and not get COVID and, you know, wear the mask, whatever, but, but, you know, this could have also been a time where maybe some of our uh, leaders or point people could have also said, this is also a good time to, you know, read some books about healing or how to cope with stress or maybe um, exercise a little more or watch what you eat or keep connecting with people you love or pick up a hobby or journal I mean, you know, they may not be there to lecture us, but I don't think we had that conversation going on on a national level. Like, what can we do to keep our own sanity and also be of service to others? Yeah, uh, just a thought, but uh, yes. but I'm right on target with you. Yeah, very good. Um, and, uh, why do people? Why do people? I think you asked that earlier, but you know, why do people overshop, overspend? Here's my quick and simple yeah. answer to it, mm-hmm. and it kind of relates to the buffet smorgasbord. It's why do people do anything? It's it's all a drug. So it's all the same reasons, basically. It's just a different way of soothing. So yeah. like you said, grief and loss, low self-esteem, dealing with anxiety, dealing with yeah. depression. And, and in one sense, addictions, like um, for those of us who are fortunate enough to maybe acknowledge them and get help for them, in many cases, and I want to be careful how I say this, but I'm not doing sometimes they keep us alive. You know, sometimes we go through so much pain and we don't have the support or, you know, in an ideal world, nobody would have addictions and we would all yeah. talk about it and have a great support system. And, but the reality is many people don't feel they have support or don't have the resources or they're not yeah. ready or what, but it may keep them alive and numbed enough to just function. But then at a certain point, hopefully they go, you know what, I've outgrown this. This is causing more harm than good. Yeah. And now I'm ready to heal. And I, most of my clients are over 50 by the time they get yeah. to me. It's never too late. My oldest client was 82 who had a shopping problem, a blind woman who wow. later in her life moved into a nursing home or an assisted living after her husband died. And she got hooked on the home shopping network. And even though she was blind, she could hear the way they described things. And she always liked dressing well. Mm-hmm. And she started ordering things left and right. She could figure out on her phone or whatever how to do it. And her daughter, who was kind of managing her finances, got wind of this. Yeah. Said, hey, mom, what's going on? And she knocked it off for a while. And then it came back. And then the daughter called me after doing it. Wow. And this woman was ripe and ready to talk about a lot of things that were bothering her. She was really uh, a joy to work with. And uh, so again, you never know. You could be mm-hmm. problem-free somewhat until you're 82. And yeah. then 
Wow, that's that's amazing. I'm glad she got help even at that late stage. Yeah, it's never too late. You were talking about how it keeps people alive. And I remember hearing that about drug addicts because they wake up and at least I have a purpose now, if, even if that is to like go out and get drugs, I have a purpose yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, it is interesting. And then we need to be more maybe compassionate with people that are dealing with these issues because oh, yeah. it could be that deep that this addiction is keeping them alive. Well, yeah. And, and there are cases where people, if they don't get their drug or their alcohol, they go into like uh, DTs, uh, delirious tremors, and they can die like their, their blood pressure and their heart and their, I mean, it can go haywire. And that's why a lot of times they need detox to be medicated and observed as they're coming off, you know, uh, yeah. their withdrawals and things like that. But, but yeah, but yeah, just, numbing the pain to get you yeah. through a hard time where you had to kind of check out or numb this incredible loss yeah. or pain or grief or trauma. Um, but then the, the tragedy is many people don't wake up and they have these terrible kind yeah. of outcomes or whatever. And I can't give you percentages, but um, I've, I mean, there, it, it's quite likely that there are people who've never had an addiction at all of, of any kind, but um, I think most people can relate to having had some addiction, whether it was nicotine, caffeine, food, workaholism, yeah. codependency, um, yeah. TV addiction, uh, technology. I mean, so, and, and, and we can be kind of judgmental about one addiction versus another. You know, some people, even my, my shoplifting clients are like, <laughs> they're often like, how come I could just have been an alcoholic? Mm -hmm. Everybody accepts that and doesn't look at it funny and judge it quite as much. I said, yeah, you know, I've been at this 30 years and I've seen the ball move down the court a little bit. People are a little more open-minded and we've had people on the news like Winona Ryder and, you know, people who've been caught shoplifting. So I think most people kind of know that this could be a, a mental health issue, but I said, let's not get into a fool's errand and compare addictions because very rarely does anybody die from shoplifting, but many people die from alcoholism and drug addiction and or kill other people with cars, with violence. Right. Don't, don't even, every addiction has its own, you know, they all kind of lead to different uh, tragedy and yeah. bad stories. But um, and, and a relatively small percentage of people actually wake up. Uh, you might have noticed on my email signature, because we've been emailing a little bit back and forth in the last week, but um, I didn't make this up, but there's something called the five stages of change. Um, and a, a two uh, psychologists, behavioral psychologists kind of came up with this maybe 50, 60 years ago, um, Prochaska and Di Clemente. And stage one of change is basically, <laughs> and this may help uh, your listeners, hopefully and yeah. viewers, but, and this doesn't have to be necessarily with an addiction. It could be just with a problem, but stage one is I don't have a problem, whether with an addiction or my anger or um, the way I'm in relationships with someone that maybe isn't working too well for the other person. Yeah. Um, and, and that's probably where most people are gonna live their entire lives. Uh, I can't give you an actual percentage of how, but it, it's, it's most people. If you're fortunate enough somehow to get to stage two, which stage two is, okay, I have a problem, but it's not that bad and I can deal with it on my own. And maybe, maybe some can, but probably most, not and that's maybe as far as they go in their terms of stage of change mm -hmm. another smaller percentage of people get to stage three where okay i've got a bigger problem than i thought and i can't handle it all on my own i probably do need some kind of help and that's like a getting to that that stage if you're lucky enough and people can be there indefinitely or for the rest of their lives where they're you know they're talking about they're acknowledging it maybe they're looking for help they found a few places 
but they haven't pulled the trigger and actually engaged in the help. And that could be a therapist, medication, a support group, reading a book, whatever, a retreat, something. Stage four is where people get to that point where they go, okay, I've looked around for help and I know I really need help pretty urgently. I'm going to try out this therapist. I'm going to try out this support group. I'm going to read this book. I'm going to hopefully all those things, but at least one of them to begin with. And then, you know, what happens a lot is, oh, it's not working or that, you know, you're kind of naive or you therapy should be over. I should have all my problems solved. I went to the support group for three months. It didn't, you know, so you got a lot of people there, but for those who stick with it and give it a chance, it, it usually will provide some benefit or they'll add other things. And then if they stay in that stage four long enough, um, doesn't mean everything's all wrapped up with a pink bow on top, but they're, they're getting well, their addictions are getting managed, they're understanding it. They're making some progress in life. Their life is improving, may take months, may take years, may take decades. And then stage five, uh, you know, wherever that is, is where now you're trying to maintain your sobriety mm-hmm. or your sense of hope, your self-esteem, which continues to improve. Or as I like to say, um, most people probably are just trying to survive their lives or life in general. And that may be better than not surviving. Yeah. Um, but I think we want to get to living, which mm-hmm. is a little bit different from just surviving. And that can be in different areas of our life. You know, you may feel like, hey, I love my home life, but I'm just surviving my job. Well, maybe eventually you can feel like you're more than surviving your job. You're living and liking your job. Or maybe you love your job, but not your home life. And maybe your health. I mean, there's different quadrants of our yeah. life. And then, and then if you're really ambitious and it's your call, maybe living is enough surviving living or sometimes i call it living to make it rhyme with survive surviving living and then thriving and that is what is possible and i've seen my own life ebb and flow where there's areas i was thriving for a while and then it got back to kind of a little bit more just living and and it ebbs and flows but i think most of us maybe it sounds like a pipe dream how can we be thriving in our recoveries that doesn't mean being overconfident or cocky it just means like well, I'm like really enjoying recovery. This is not a burden to go yeah. to a meeting or to take it one day at a time and keep it simple. This is like, it's working. And I feel like I'm starting to thrive in my business and my love life and my health, my mental health, my hobbies, my commitment to community, my spirituality. I don't, but, but that's, yeah. you know, I mean, kind of like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Abraham Maslow, you know, that, that pyramid, you know, basic needs are, you know, just getting food and shelter and safety Yep. And then, you know, the, I think, I think we all need that. And then, but then we have like uh, social needs and belonging. And then we have uh, needs to have um, like meaning and purpose in our life. And then if you get to the pinnacle, it's kind of like they, <laughs> this term isn't used too much anymore. Self-actualization, mm-hmm. you know, like really kind of feeling like you are living a pretty good authentic life and you're, you know, like your whatever goals or purpose or meaning, you feel pretty like Aligned. on top of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of grief and loss, it was funny because I just did uh, a live storytelling event on Friday night locally here in Detroit. Uh, it'll be up on YouTube hopefully by the end of the month. And and when I turned 56 years ago, I felt like I was at that pinnacle where I turned 50. I now am officially an elder in some cultural traditions turning 50. <laughs> I was embracing it. My work was going well. I had a home, a little bit of money in the bank. My marriage was going well. My physical health, my mental health, my spiritual, I had a community. I mean, I mean, I had arrived and it was kind of funny. Maybe I was a little naive, but my, my story that I wrote was about the last six years having been on the mountaintop 
And then through a number of losses, yeah. shortly after, I had a good friend who died a few months uh, after my 50th birthday uh, in 2015. And then I had, uh, I don't have children, but I had a mentee, um, an African-American uh, kid who I began mentoring when he was uh, 15. And uh, I kept in touch with him. He moved to Nashville from Detroit. And, we, and he died in a car accident right, right after Christmas in 2015. And he was like my wife's and my spirit son. And then my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's at the beginning of 2016. And, and then I had some issues in my marriage and all, you know, it was kind of like, and over the last several years, and then with the contentious politics, and then the last yeah. year of COVID, it was like, it's been like, I mean, I've kept my work and I've been functional, but I was really yeah. feeling like, even though I was working my recovery program, I was eating a little more, I was vegging out a little more of these, and I was feeling kind of dead inside. And, and, and I, and my wife was realizing this too. And some of my friends and like, I kind of knew it too, but like, there was even a part of me that didn't care. Yeah. Um, it was really kind of interesting. Cause I kind of thought I had like peaked yeah. and like everything would just keep going. I mean, I, I, I know there's gonna be a lot, but it really took me kind of by surprise. And so I, 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 uh, you know, I volunteered to do the storytelling event with the, this organization. Cause I've done it before. And this woman who, who runs it as a story coach. And she really helped me over the course of a month and a half craft what I wanted to say in about 15 to 20 minutes um, about like this journey. Um, and the topic was real men for the, for Father's Day. This, so it was myself and two other older men who told stories and that topic appealed to me and, and whatever that means to people, but it's a, it's a rich topic because I was kind of feeling like a real man, and you know, at age fifty, I, I had the Quan like from Jerry Maguire, and money, mm -hmm. love, respect, community, everything. And then gradually, I really felt more like a lump <laughs> than a man, let alone a real man. And and what and what is a real man? And I, I about vulnerability and not having all the answers and admitting when you maybe made poor choices or, or gone in a shell. And I, I, it was a good process. Um, I don't know how that ties in, but. We're talking well, about Abraham Maslow's needs. Yes. So even when you get there again, you may not be able to stay there. Um, right. Things can happen. And that's, again, the reminder, you know, I'm not trying to be negative or morose about it, but you never know. You can be realistic. And that's where recovery, I mean, I will say that even though I was starting to slide in other areas with gaining a little weight and not drinking excessively, but a little more than I normally would and more TV yeah. and more on the computer wandering around, you know, but I had, I had to kind of pull myself back in a little bit. Yeah. So now I'm in that process. So circling back to those five stages you mentioned, and yeah. I've looked those up before, pre-contemplation, contemplation, yeah. preparation, yeah. action, maintenance. So maintenance, you were talking right. about that maintenance stage. And I know yeah. there's another stage called termination where you think you'll never go back to that old behavior, but it's controversial because people are like, well, you can never say that. Well, well, right. And actually I have six with kind of an asterisk, like relapse, uh, where some people do after they're maintaining for a while, yeah. inevitably do relapse. And then now some may relapse in a way where they go whole hog and they kind of almost go back into denial and have to start stage one yeah. again. I have a, I do have a problem, but, but many people, and I've, I've had a few relapses and, you know, over the course of 30 years with one off shoplifting, not lately, but, but I still keep an eye on that. And I have codependency relapses and, and now I've got to look at other, but, you know, but if you can get back on the wagon quickly yep. and get back um, to maintenance, because that is the goal you want to right, be back to maintenance. Right. Yeah. It doesn't mean you have to, because some people go, Oh my God, there goes my eight years of sobriety. Well, fuck it. You know, yeah. you don't want to think like that. And, and again, yeah. recovery is very humble. We're, we're, it's not a competition. Uh, we're all doing it best we can one day at a time learning. Um, yeah. It, it sounds like an easy concept to grasp, but 
but it's hard for most it's people. It's hard work. Yeah. yeah. So we're coming to the end of this uh, video. Do you have any like last minute comments um, about this? So um, we've talked about a lot of things, but bringing it back to our main focus, which is um, shopping and spending and the potential problems that that can bring for people and their families is um, if, if, if you or anybody you know um, thinks or feels you might have a problem, um, share this video with somebody or rewatch it, uh, go to my website or Lisa's website uh, to kind of, there's a few little uh, assessment tests you can take for free that'll ask you some questions that can kind of tell you if you have a problem or maybe how big a problem, but, but be careful. This is a very insidious thing and it's only going to get worse in terms of yeah. the algorithms that they're creating to loop us in. And I think what's happening for a lot of my clients is we're becoming both a nation of shopaholics and workaholics. There's a vicious cycle where I don't know always what comes first, the chicken or the egg, but let's say your shopping comes first and now you're in debt or you haven't put away for retirement or savings. So now you have to work until you're 93. Yep. And maybe you didn't want to do that. If you mm -hmm. want to work to 93 and it's your choice, God bless you. But most people would at least like to have the choice to have some financial security and to be able to retire if they want. I think we could all agree to that. Now, some people become workaholics first, naturally, and then they're making money or whatever, or maybe they're just paying the bills, but they're feeling like, you know, I'm working real hard. I deserve to have a little fun with my hard-earned money. Mm -hmm. I do not disagree. It's just how, how often, and, you know, when and why and the whole thing, because then they're working a lot, and then they start getting into debt, and now they have to keep working to, you know, so be careful about that, because it's kind of like, I'm, I'm not trying to be... Uh, conspiratorial here, but I think our culture promotes both consumerism, hyper -consum sure. and workaholism. And, and you may think that's great, <laughs> I don't know, but, mm -hmm. but I think most of us want to be kind of conscious about our lives and we want to have some form of balance. Yes. And so I think, again, in the, like I said in the beginning, be careful, even if you're not relating to this now, or you don't even know anybody who you can identify as maybe having a shopping and spending problem, uh, it could happen. And one final thing too, um, people often ask me, I know somebody who has, I think a problem with their shopping spending, but I don't know how to approach them. Oh yeah. And I can't tell you that there's a one size fits all, but, um, and you gotta know the person, but you know, a good thing might be, hey, I saw this really interesting video online with a woman named Lisa and a guy named Terry and whether you want to say, and I thought about you, or you, if you want to say, you know, I identified with it and I just thought it was really interesting and this seems to be a real problem, would you, can I send you the link or whatever? Or if you want to be more direct, you could say, you know, Carol, Dave, you know, I love you and care about you and tell me if I'm out of line here. Um, but from what you've been telling me periodically about your bills piling up and a little bit from what I've observed or maybe even heard secondhand, you know, I don't know if this is true for you, but have you ever thought that maybe you have like a, a shopping or a spending problem or an addiction? And I don't know what the person might say. They could say, no, I don't. And they say, well, you know, I just want you to know if you do, I'm here if you want to talk or I'm not judging you. I still love you, but I hear this is a growing problem. Or you might be surprised the person might be a little forthcoming and you might you know, keep it confidential, yeah. but you might say, well, you know, as a matter of fact, I, I saw this video or here's a website or, yeah. you know, um, so 
or you could be subliminal and just put an article down on their desk or have the video running in the background just be subliminal but but it is a very hard thing to bring up subjects about a drinking problem, a spending problem. It is, and and sometimes we've tried that, and they, people just get very defensive. So we, but but maybe you have to put it in writing or an email, or a card, or just I'm concerned, or know that I'm here to help, or uh, would you mind if I give you a little information about this for you to look over? Um, yeah. Tell me if I'm out of bounds. It's not my intention. I'm not judging you. I'm just I love you. I care about you. I'm concerned. And if any of you have ever had a problem and you feel comfortable in this thing, you know, I know it when I see it because I've had this problem or I had a loved one who's had this problem, uh, that can help. Yeah. So again, it's up to you, but I yeah. think I think that can be yeah, helpful. Definitely. I like your sharing tip because sometimes sharing takes some of the burden off of maybe what you're feeling too when you can share it with other people. Yeah. Or even if you haven't had a shop problem, you can say, you know what, I don't know if I ever told you this, somebody you could say to your loved one, you know, I used to have an alcohol problem or I've been in recovery. I never told you this, but, and you know, addiction is addiction and they all kind of have a lot of the similar things, you know, yeah. that, that go on and, uh, you know, and uh, I don't know, but, uh, but I'm glad you're doing what you're doing, yes. Lisa. With oh, I, you. I wish you all the best with your uh, beautiful podcast, and I'm honored to, to have been asked to be on it, and I look forward to uh, um, our helping some people. Thank you, and I, I really do appreciate you coming on my uh, YouTube channel today, and um, if you guys like this video, please give it a thumbs up, and also uh, leave a comment down below. We would love to hear your feedback, and uh, don't forget to subscribe and hit the bell to be alerted when the next video drops. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.